Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to dig into the mysterious connection between the brain and music with Dr. Oliver Sacks. And later on, Greg and I will review the new records from rapper T.I., the British pop band Oasis, and indie rockers TV on the radio. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. There's power in a factory, power in the land, power in the hand of the worker. It all amounts to nothing if together we don't stand. There is power in a union. That is Billy Bragg uh, with There is Power in a Union, an apropos song for our lead news story this week. Bragg is one of numerous U.K. recording artists who have joined together to create a new artist's coalition, the Featured Artist Coalition to Stand Up for Rights, Artist Rights, as the industry transitions into a digital economy. Some big names, Jim, associated with this group. In addition to Billy Bragg, we've got groups like Radiohead, We've got David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. We've got the Claxons, Iron Maiden, the Verve, Paul Oakenfold. Basically a who's who of U.K. rock royalty joining together. This is an interesting move and an interesting time for the music industry to uh, be faced with something like this. I think we've had a century of abuse of artists by the music industry. One of the reasons that artists have had such a hard time getting fair compensation from the music industry is that, in fact, they don't speak with a single voice and are often taken to the cleaners when it comes to contractual obligations. It's why 90% of artists never got a royalty check yeah. for a recording contract in the, in the history of the music business. Now, as we're transitioning to this digital economy and artists are going to start uh, having their music bandied about in a digital framework uh, with iTunes and all sorts of internet stores cropping up, 
artists like Radiohead are saying, we want a voice in this. We want to, we want to decide how we're going to be compensated. They also want to take a good, hard look at copyright law and how it applies to this new digital economy. You know, Radiohead doing that uh, venture last year where they basically gave away copies of their record online, they want to have the freedom to explore similar economic ventures in the future, and they want to have a voice. They want to be at the table when the industry starts uh, going to bat with the technology companies and ironing out a new compensation plan. Week after week, we're saying on Sound Opinions that the copyright laws need to be brought into the new millennium. So the UK has got the Featured Artists Coalition, Greg. Is there any uh, similar movement underway in America? Well, Jim, a few years ago, we had this organization called the Recording Artists Coalition, and it was very specific. It wanted to look at health compensation issues and how they related to artists. But as yet, we've really had no comparable attempt to have artists band together in the United States, and it'll be interesting if they follow suit. Greg, those dulcet tones are, of course, the theme music to the James Bond franchise of films, written by uh, English composer John Barry, who's been called the Q of Bond theme music. <laughs> he wrote several other songs we'll talk about in a minute. Why are we talking about James Bond? Well, the 22nd installment of that uh, long-lived movie franchise is going to open in November, A Quantum of Solace, I think the silliest <laughs> title in, in a long history of them. For the last 10, 15 years, the movie industry has increasingly turned away from hiring songwriters to write original music. I think that's a loss. You know, in this in this age of corporate synergy, a Warner Brothers film picks a Warner Brothers artist music uh, to hype in there and you get this hit factory. At least that's how it's supposed to work, right? The one exception is the good old James Bond franchise. 22 films, 20 of them have opened with an original theme song written by a currently popular artist. Some of them have been great. 11 of those songs have made the Billboard Top Singles chart, but only two in the last 20 years. So even the popular uh, Bond franchise is uh, sinking. Now we have this new one. Who did the music? It was originally supposed to be Amy Winehouse, but she was in the middle of her drug-fueled self-destruction. <laughs> so the producers turned instead to the sort of pairing that we as rock critics dream about all the time. When we talk about Alicia Keys, how many times have we said something like, you know, obviously a great keyboard player, wonderful voice, but it's it's glossy production kills it. What would it be like if she got together with, like, the White Stripes? If Alicia Keys was backed by the White Stripes? Well, now we have our answer. Let's hear a little bit of this song, another piece of Bond trivia. It's, uh, it's called Another Way to Die is only the third song in the history of Bond themes that has a title different than the title of the movie, and it's the first duet in the long history of Bond music. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Yeah, I'm gonna 
There it is, the answer to Jim DeRogatis' musical question. What would that sound like? Alicia Keys and Jack White together. Jim, I have to say, when you brought that up, I immediately thought, that's a Frankenstein monster. They really don't belong together, and yes, there's your proof. What you have there, I think, is essentially a Jack White song with uh, Alicia Keys tacked on. She's kind of window dressing on an elaborated White Stripes song that's sort of been retrofitted into a James Bond theme. I think it does the job very poorly. Yes, there's those dramatic crescendos, drops into near silence with just Alicia Keys' piano, but I don't think it really works as a song. I mean, let's compare it to the classic James Bond theme songs. I think one, two, you've got Shirley Bassey with Goldfinger and Shirley Bassey with Diamonds Are Forever as the classic James Bond themes. Goldfinger He's the man, the man with the Midas touch A spider's touch Such a cold finger Then you have Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better. That's a clear number three, maybe fighting for number one or two. I don't think Jack White and Alicia Keys belong even in the top ten compared to that company. So you're going to go with the two Bassey songs as your favorite Bond themes. I agree. I'm also big on Paul McCartney and Wings, Live and Let Die. But I think my favorite is Nancy Sinatra's You Only Live Twice. She is the (laughs) unheralded godmother of punk. She actually preceded Shirley Bassey when she did that song in 67. You. A lot of these songs, Greg, are available on a new uh, Capitol Records compilation, The Best of Bond, James Bond, along with some of the lousy ones, too. And there's a long history of those. Sheena Easton, let's not forget. I think Madonna and Chris Cornell both dropped the ball recently, right up there with uh, Jack White and Alicia Keys. But the absolute nadir, I believe, has to be Aha, which did The Living Daylights in 1987. I mean, who the heck thought Aha, James Bond? There's a match. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and up next we have Dr. Oliver Sacks, the famed physician and neurologist from England who has written a series of books, most notably Awakenings, which uh, turned into an Oscar-nominated film in which Robin Williams played Dr. Sacks and also starring Robert De Niro. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Sachs is as great a writer as he is a researcher. We wanted to talk to him about his new book, which is right up our alley, Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain. Dr. Sachs joins us from New York. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Nice to be with you. I think the place to start as we dive into this new book, M- Musicophilia, is that the right way to say it? 
Uh-huh. We're certainly music files as rock critics, but musicophilia, I've never thought of myself suffering. Early in the preface, you write that the first incitement to think and write about music came in 1966 when I saw the profound effects of music on the deeply Parkinsonian patients I later wrote about in Awakenings. The character played by Robert De Niro in that film sort of begins to come to life as he listens to the radio, if I recall, right? Or, or the record player you wheel in. Uh-huh. But, but you've been thinking about this throughout your professional life, the effects of, of music on people whose brains have otherwise uh, shut down or, or had problems. And music can reach people in ways that nothing else in science seems to be able to do. Well, that's certainly so with some people and some patients. With these uh, Parkinsonian people whom back in the 60s, whom I still see, people like this often, they can be almost motionless, but they tend to have difficulty moving fluently and sometimes moving at all or speaking at all unless there's music there and music can give them its go, its flow, its rhythm and whether the music is provided by a living therapist or by a, a tape or an iPod so long as the music has has a good time structure, a good beat, a good rhythm then this will give its rhythm and its tempo to the people with Parkinson's who otherwise really don't have any rhythm or any tempo. So it's, the music serves as sort of a lifeline. Yeah, a lifeline, a pacer. And that's what this book is, a collection of wonderfully written and very moving anecdotes of patients that you got to meet and spend time with who in some way were given a lifeline by music or, or, or music was their connection to the world. I had first read in The New Yorker, preceding the book, the piece about the uh, conductor. Yeah, Clive. Tell us about Clive, if you will. Well, um, Clive was a you know an, an eminent sort of musician and musicologist until in his thirties he he got this terrible attack of of encephalitis from from the herpes virus, and this is mercifully very rare. But in in his case, it really wiped out the memory parts of his brain while leaving everything else intact. So he remained highly intelligent and with his normal personality, but really, as you say, unable to remember events for more than a few seconds. So this was sort of totally disabling because it meant he was out of it, in effect, all the while, until it was discovered that there was one remarkable sparing and that his ability to and that his musical abilities, his ability to sing, to play the piano, to play the organ, to improvise, to conduct a choir, were absolutely intact. And and it is most amazing to sort of see this man conduct a, a huge choir or an orchestra at an absolutely professional level and sort of turning to the different singers or the instruments, absolutely knowing it all. But then within a few seconds, finishing, having no memory that he's done this. It's as if for this man who, for whom time stops constantly every seven seconds, the only time when it continues is when the music is playing. Uh, yes, and basically he's he's only organized in, in action and, and in, in the music. You might, in fact, ask him if he knows, say, a particular piece of music and, and your sentence won't have much meaning for him or he'll simply say no, but you give him the first note or, or put the score in front of him and immediately he's he's off. But he only has memory in the moment, uh, what's called procedural memory sometimes, and no memory of events or of facts, or very little. 
It's it's almost like he's tapping into some kind of higher consciousness, and yet, Doctor, you also talk about the fact that you can you know you can spot the brain of a professional musician. I mean, there's a there's a telling difference. You know, if you opened up the skull of a musician as opposed to just a person who was not one, you you could tell the difference, right? Um, yeah. Well, you actually don't have to go as far as, yeah. as opening up the skull. <laughs> so you know, you, you, you can you, just you, take an X-ray, you, I guess, right? Um, yeah. You know, there, there are all sorts of things, um, MRIs now, and sort of which give beautiful brain images. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's actually very remarkable because you really can't tell the brain of an Einstein from from anyone else's. But being in music or being a musician does seem to alter the brain quite visibly and grossly so that all different parts of the brain, the big band of white matter called the corpus callosum between the two hemispheres and the auditory parts of the brain, but also visual parts and motor parts and lower parts like cerebellum, they're all enlarged and you can immediately say this, this, was, this was probably a musician. Although, of course, that leaves open as to whether he's a musician because he had that sort of brain or whether he developed that sort of brain mm-hmm. through music. And the uh, the answer simply is, is is some of both. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying that you, you may not necessarily be able to train your brain to be a musician's brain. If you, you may be just born with that, but we're not certain what the answer is yet. To some extent, you can train it. I mean, this is clear with people who have a year of Suzuki training. And there was recently, in fact, I just mentioned this in the enlarged paperback of the book. There's been a beautiful case history recently of a um, a man who was um, frightened off music when he was a boy. He was told he couldn't sing, he had no ear, he wasn't musical. and But 30 years later, he decided to take singing lessons as an experiment and to get brain imaging before and after a year of singing lessons. And to everyone's surprise, especially his own, he did rather well with the singing lessons and joined a choir and, in fact, his brain shows quite amazing changes which developed, you know, in, in middle life. And so even people who imagine they're unmusical and who have got got to their 40s or 50s or 60s can, in fact, often, you know, develop musicality and the changes in the brain which go with it. You mean there could be, let's say you're some 55-year-old guy laying around the house and, and suddenly you decide, I'm going to really apply myself to a piano. I mean, are you saying we could, you know, you could discover the virtuoso pianist within um, at that stage um, in life? Not a virtuoso, and, and maybe it wouldn't work. I mean, maybe you would be one, the the very rare person who is genuinely unmusical and pitch deaf, but that's pretty rare. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I think the vast majority of people have, you know, have potential musical ability, and probably more than they than may be realised. Well, and you do tell another anecdotal uh, case history in in the book of the man who was hit by lightning in in a phone booth and and came out to did suddenly find himself incredibly musically prodigious. Um, uh, yeah, um, this was a man who had had very little musical interest or apparently talent before, and he seemed to become transformed, you know, whatever the lightning bolt or the, or the shortage of oxygen, because he had a cardiac arrest for 30 seconds when he was hit by lightning, whatever it did, it, it did something to his brain. You know, he now gives concerts and, and is, um, is very much in love with music. It's it's almost too good to be true. You know, you're hit by lightning and all of a sudden you're this hmm. great talent. Um, yeah, well, you know, when he first performed and told his story, half the audience had fantasies that, that they too would like to be struck by lightning. <laughs> but but it, 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 it's not a good thing on the whole.
We will continue our conversation with Dr. Oliver Sacks next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Jim and I are going to review new albums from Oasis, TI, and TV on the radio. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, here with Greg Cott, and we're continuing our discussion with neurologist Oliver Sacks. Throughout his career, Dr. Sacks has witnessed the important connections between music and the mind, something Greg and I waste a lot of time on. So I wanted to find out how he felt about the role of music education in the schools. You rearrange me till I'm sane. Well, Doctor, I know that as, as an author and as a scientist, you try to avoid the grand conclusions. Musicophilia is a collection of, of case studies and anecdotes that try to tell human stories of people who've had these experiences. But, you know, I also couldn't help thinking as I read it that every educator in the country ought to read this at a time when, when music education is sliced. It's the first thing to go from every budget in every school system. It's like, you know, what you say again and again and again is we we don't even begin to have any inkling of an understanding about what music does to the brain, but we sure are getting a lot of examples of, of that it does very powerful things. <laughs> it would not seem to be a good idea to not teach kids how to play. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've sort of put this point even more strongly now on the paperback, and I really mm. think it, it it needs to be part of uh, of education and primary schools, at least to be available. And whatever it does, it's, it's fun. Yeah, and yeah. it's as a physician who mostly works with older people, I've sort of seen the therapeutic powers and various diseases and disorders, but, it's, but I think it's, it's educational powers. Um, I'm, I'm no believer in the so-called Mozart effect, which I think got described about 15 years ago and misinterpreted, uh, the notion then being that a little bit of Mozart could increase one's IQ and all sorts of... Uh, intellectual abilities. I don't think that's the case, but real engagement with music and listening carefully or or trying to play an instrument, this can undoubtedly not only increase musical ability, but, you know, but powers of attention and, and probably other abilities. So it, it needs to be 
part of one's education, and early, preferably. It, it leads to a question about the quality of the music. I mean, you talk about the restorative power of music. Is there any connection between that and the actual quality of the music? I mean, have you ever seen bad music uh, have a powerful effect on, on somebody uh, in that sort of way? And I guess um, the question is, what is good or bad music? What is your definition yeah. of that? This is obviously, <laughs> obviously, Doctor, this is what we struggle with in yeah. our livelihoods. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, well, certainly say to come back to the beginning for the the, the people with Parkinson's, it's rhythm which counts, uh, whether it, whether it's good music or bad music in other ways is sort of irrelevant. So 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 long as it has a rhythm which will give him give him some some organization and time, but otherwise it's um, it's very much a a, a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. Although I would think that the sort of the sort of wallpaper music, or music, which you know, which one often hears, probably doesn't do much for for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Or or you know, you think of the U.S. assaulting uh, Noriega when he was in his compound uh, with uh, Van uh, Halen. Well, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, well, well, that's intriguing. Yeah, no, the, the, um, the music has sometimes been used as a as a sort of an assault weapon in that way. I mean, it makes sense in some ways because we, we, to get back to Clive when you were talking about, I mean, the thing that was so moving about his story is that this music brought him back to life. And the only other thing that that he would remember in between these, uh, you know, every second seven seconds, the amnesia was his wife. You know, he knew yeah. he loved this woman and he had this connection, and he would say hello to her sometimes ten times in the course of an hour long visit because he forgot she was there. But every time there was this deep love and this joy to see this woman. Could not remember his children's names, but but knew this. So it, it puts music, you know, on the level of the deepest love of your life. Yeah, well, I think it belongs there. Well, let's talk more about the downside since we are critics. You, you right. address uh, brain worms <laughs> and this concept of a, getting a song. I've always called it an earworm after the. Uh, yeah, well, well, I, um, that's the proper name. I, I I just called it a brain worm because I'm a neurologist, but but really. Gotcha. Earworms. So how does this work? How is it that we can listen to, you know, Lollipop by uh, <laughs> by Little Wayne and, and we hate the song intellectually and yet it's stuck in my head all the time? I can't get it out. Well, um, I mean, for some reason, and this seems to occur with, with virtually everyone, the, the musical parts of the brain, if I can put it that way, and, and there's no one musical center in the brain. There are like a dozen different systems in the brain which contribute pitch and rhythm and melody and other things. But the musical parts of the brain seem very, very prone to, to echo and to repetition, much more than anything else. I mean, I don't think one gets visual repetitions in the same way and probably not as much in the way of, of verbal repetitions. But um, I, I think we're all very prone to musical repetition and of, of an involuntary sort. Usually there's a fairly short segment, like 15 or 20 seconds. It's usually not a whole song or a whole piece, but a segment which, which goes round and round in a sort of circle. Mm. And one can even demonstrate this sort of thing happening. You can visualize the brain and almost see an earworm going round and round. And they're often not easy to stop. And as you say, one, one may hate it, one may despise it, one may be embarrassed by it. One will sort of jump up and down and scream and have a shower, and it may be very difficult to stop. Sometimes you can, sometimes completing the piece or singing 
singing it will get rid of it, mm-hmm. but not always. Well, and there was a positive side to that concept, too. I mean, you write about the ability to remember music. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but but a piece of music you love, you can almost put the coin in the jukebox in your head and summon it up, and it, it will play in your head as if you're listening to it. I was reading you talking about that. And thinking about, I mean, this explains why people will go see the Rolling Stones today. I mean, what they're really hearing in their heads is like the Rolling Stones that they loved in 1968, you know, and what they have now is this simulacrum, you know, of 70-year-old guys on stage just doing it for the money. But it sort of explained to me how it is, (laughs) how I could be at at a concert and have a completely different experience than somebody else. Yeah, well, well, um, um, musical memory and and especially, I think, involuntary musical memory is, is... tends to be very, very strong and, and, and even sometimes in relatively non-musical people. Sometimes one can summon this up voluntarily, but sometimes it comes as an earworm and, and sometimes just as, as a nice musical companion. And very occasionally, if one is in trouble, as a, as a real hallucination. Well, you know, there is, I mean, you, you talk about the mood-altering properties of music, Doctor. And, and what about the arguments that some parents groups have made over the years? Uh, the Parents Music Resource Center, most famously in the 80s, was talking about certain records being able to influence behavior of uh, teenagers. You know, a, a, a Slayer record, for example, says, you know, uh, starts talking about Satanism and going yeah, out and killing people, and, and yeah. this is going to influence uh, the way the kids behave. Do you buy into that? Well, I don't think music itself means anything, but it may be, if it's associated with, um, I mean, um, for example, um, one of my patients, a man who was losing his hearing, he had hallucinations, and among his hallucinations were Nazi marching songs, which he had heard as a boy growing up in Germany, and which horrified him. Now, the it's not the music itself, but the words and, and actions which go with the music, mm-hmm. which you know, which, which which made these hideous and dangerous, and so it would be with with a sort of satanic records. And I, I think there's a huge difference, if you want, between pure music or instrumental music and music which has words to it or actions associated with it. I don't think that music, as such, has any particular meaning or message. Yeah. And of course, this is like 2001, a clockwork orange. You could you could take any cheerful, upbeat piece of music and put bad associations in somebody's head about oh, it. Oh, oh, oh sure. Yeah, 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 and a clockwork orange, he's turned on by Beethoven's Ninth. Of course, in 2001, it's, it's Hal singing A Bicycle Made for Two, which is my favorite song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you are a music fan. Is that what led you, you? You fell in love with music early on. Is that what has led you to bring it into your science? I, I think probably so. I, I was one of the less musical of a, of a musical family, but um, my uh, my mama used to sing a bicycle made for two, which she had learned in the 1890s when bicycles made for two were just appearing for the first time. Mm. And um, it's um, in fact now now I'm afraid it's, that's going through my mind as an earworm. <laughs> But 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 I decline to sing it on radio. That's okay. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Oliver Sacks. Music Ophelia is now out in paperback, expanded, and it's uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show, Doctor. Thank you so much for joining Sound Opinions. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks both. You're listening to Sound Opinions.
Bag It Up, the lead track from the seventh album from Oasis called Dig Out Your Soul. Oasis, the band that defined the Britpop movement in England in the early to mid-90s, one of the biggest-selling bands out of England the last 15 years, haven't quite translated as hugely to the United States, with one exception, a a major hit with uh, Wonderwall in the mid-90s. But their mark on British music has been huge. In a lot of ways, they reinvigorated UK music with their first two albums. Definitely Maybe in 1994, and What's the Story, Morning Glory in 1995. A whole slew of bands grew up around this Britpop movement that they created, which was essentially bringing back the elements of melody and big choruses and Wembley Stadium-worthy anthems into the lexicon of UK pop. They've continued on. They're now on their seventh record. They continue to live large. I mean, they are on every magazine cover in England, it seems, in the last (laughs) month, uh, announcing the arrival of yet another Oasis record. Jim and I are going to be back in a minute with a review of the new album, Dig Out Your Soul, but let's hear a track from it first. It's called The Shock of the Lightning on Sound Opinions. Shock of the Lightning from Oasis album number seven, Dig Out Your Soul on Sound Opinions. Greg, I tell you, I think the Gallagher brothers, the vocalist and guitarist, songwriter, Liam and Noel, uh, missed their real calling because what they should be is stand-up comics. (laughs) I was reading some of the interviews they did in the British press preceding the release of this album, and they are forever defending themselves against doing anything new. Says Noel, he says, it's a working class thing. I'm not an experimenter. I'm not even going to try the Mancunian Mm -hmm. accent. My other favorite was, I'm trying salmon. That's as far as my interest in new things goes. (laughs) This is not a new album. This is the same album Oasis has made six times before. Blah, blah, blah. They rip off the Beatles. We know that. They do it so shamelessly. You can pick out little things like, love is a litany, a magical mystery. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you're accused of being a Beatles ripoff artist, why would you even bring up a lyric like that? You know, why would you repeat the coda to Dear Prudence? Why would you put a John Lennon sample? Blah, blah, blah. Not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is just that they're moving to 
too slowly this time. And Noel, who is the main auteur, you know, he is the Billy Corgan of this band. Mm-hmm. He's the dictator. He's lazy. He slays a mere six of the 11 songs. Yeah. Liam's songs are always tossed off. There's three of those. They let Andy Bell, the bass player, do a song. One of the tragedies of this band is that they were never the best Britpop band. They were merely the most successful. Andy Bell was one of the leaders of Ride. Everything Ride did in their entire discography <laughs> beats anything by Oasis. And let's not even go to the Blur versus Oasis debate. This is a trash it record. There is no, if you own any other Oasis, there is no need for you to buy this record. I will disagree with you on the point that Oasis's first two records were clearly inferior to a lot of what was going on in England at the time. I've come around to the belief now that those records do, in fact, have some amazing songs on them. They weren't original, but they're amazing songs. But more pointedly, you nailed it when you said, you know, we've got seven albums now of this (laughs) (laughs) sort of so-called artistry. Uh, And again, yes, the the Beatles thing has been overstated. Yes, they do rip off the Beatles. They are shameless about it. They are absolutely in your face about it. They are blatant about it. They call attention to it. To be fair, this time they also, Waiting for the Rapture is a blatant ripoff of 5 to 1 by the Doors. Right. So they're broadening their horizons. (laughs) Right. And there's nothing wrong with that, in a sense, because pop art and music would not exist without artful thievery from your sources and your influences. So let's just even forget about the fact that, yes, they do rip off the most popular and most important band, perhaps, of all time. The more important point here is that these songs are third-rate Beatles imitations. That song we just played, The Shock of the Lightning, that is by far the fastest, most energetic song on the entire record. They are hiding behind walls and layers and layers of sound here. And what's more, Jim... You know, not that we've ever looked to Oasis for lyrical enlightenment, <laughs> but these lyrics are really bad. It's one thing to so- talk about. What I really loved about those first two records, they were about the bravado of being 20 they wanted and to be living stars. for forever, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And I can understand and, you know, appreciate that impulse. Yes, that's going to sound great at Wembley Stadium. But sample lyrics, love is a time machine up on the silver screen. Space and time are here and now and only in your mind. I got, mean, got, got to get me a doctor with a remedy. I'm going to take a walk with the monkey man. It's like they what t- the heck is that about? It's like they took the, you know, the the post Maharishi Beatles and sort of created this dumbed down version of it. it it's really just bad. Uh, and and it, I think you, you know, nailed it. Yeah. It is lazy. They are a bloated band. They have become a parody of themselves. Uh, the UK press seems to have not picked up on that yet. But yes, you don't really need a seventh Oasis record. Go back and listen to those first two and tell me that this one comes even close uh, better to, yet, the, to go, that Go back and listen to Blur's Park Life and anything that Ride did. But this sounds like this is a double trash hit, am I right? Yeah. So if you want to check in on the new Oasis record, give us your review, or talk about anything else we talk about on Sound Opinions, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, this time with reviews from new albums from TI and TV on the radio. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as... A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as. John's got Brewers through, he gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of him. Who's that cut lord marching? You should cut down on your pork life, mate. Get some exercise. All the people. So- 
Fuck it up when I want, except on Wednesdays when I get rudely awakened by the dustman. I put my trousers on, have a cup of tea, and I think about leaving the house. I feed the pigeons, I sometimes feed the sparrows too. It gives me a sense of enormous Hey, Jill. You know the old sugar daddy. They be tricking their tell them, girl. I said you can have whatever you like. I said you can have whatever you like. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Whatever You Like by T.I. He wrote it for me, Greg. You heard him say right up the top. <laughs> hey, Jim. From his new album, Paper Trail. We talked about T.I.'s last album in 2007, T.I. vs. T.I.P. He's the self-proclaimed king of the South, rapper Clifford Harris Jr. That record had an interesting concept. It was about his split personality, his inner conflict between T.I., the calculating businessman, and T.I.P., the tough-talking street thug who had convictions in the 90s for crack cocaine. I'm sad to say that T.I.P. has won out since then. He was feeling kind of paranoid because in May of 06, his friend and personal assistant was shot to death. So last October, T.I. is busted in a federal sting. He's in the parking lot of a Walgreens buying several machine guns and silencers from an undercover federal witness. Not a good idea. He's going to jail for a year. He's lucky. He could have gone for 10. First, he has to do a 1,000 hours of community service. Much of this album, Paper Trail, was written while he was under house arrest. He was locked down in the house, so he decided to write. He's kind of penitent at times. He's, he's saying, I know I did something wrong. There's a line on here, reflection should not be mistaken for glorification. However, at the same time, while he's reflecting on what he did wrong and the fact he's going to go to jail for a year, he's made a deal with MTV for the cameras to follow him through these thousand hours of community service and walk him yeah. right up to jail yeah. when he's going to go away for a year. So I don't know how much we should believe the penitence. About half the album is addressing his legal woes. The other half, well, uh, you know, song titles like Porn Star pretty much tell you all you need to know. Let's hear this record. We'll come back, give our opinions, and rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. This is a track called My Life, Your Entertainment, clearly about the uh, current situation Clifford Harris faces on Sound Opinions.
from the new album Paper Trail with his uh, fellow pop star Usher singing the hook on that particular song My Life Your Entertainment I think the key song as he pointed out to this entire record you watch it I live it go grab some popcorn T.I. Yeah. tells us <laughs> you know that's the truest thing he says on this record I think there's a lot of fodder here for some really interesting material he's one of the few major pop stars to be making an album in the in the days before he goes to jail you know I mean it's a rare opportunity to do something maybe really special uh, unfortunately, I don't think he has the lyrical acumen to really address this in any sort of depth or any sort of complexity. There's a lot of complexity to T.I. If you've ever interviewed him, Jim, and I know you have, you realize that this guy has a lot going on in his life. Yeah. He's conflicted about a lot of things. He's an incredibly smart businessman. At the same time, he's got this thuggish past that he's trying to outrun and outlive. All of this should provide prime fodder for a really deep type of record. But what we, what we get here is Surface Sheen. In a lot of ways, this is T.I.'s most commercial sounding record. I think the hooks on this record come fast and furious. That song, My Life, Your Entertainment, a fabulous collaboration with Kanye West, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne on a track called Swagger Like Us, trading verses over a sample from M.I.A.'s Paper Planes. That is, I think, the highlight of the record in a lot yeah. of ways. And, and T.I. plays just a minor role. Living revolutionary, nothing less than legendary. Gangsta hereditary, got it from my dad. Flow colder than February with extraordinary swag. So he's giving radio what it wants. He's made it his most commercial record. But this is a blown opportunity. I've felt that way, Greg, about every album he's given us. This is a smart guy with an unerring ear for hooks. He's a fine rapper. I really like a lot of the music here. I think Swagger Like Us is going to be, you know, on everybody's top ten singles list for the year. But, man, you know, go to jail and sit there and think for a year about what you want to say. Because the lyrical content is important in hip-hop. It's not just about the groove. You keep comparing yourself again and again on this record and throughout your career to Tupac Shakur. Tupac was a poet and a deep thinker. He had some boneheaded ideas. He had some incredibly deep ideas. Look at that and listen to him and think about it while you're away up the, up the river. And don't just be planning about part two about your MTV series. I think on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, it's a burn it. But, man, I wish we got more from this guy. I would agree. He's a singles artist right now. He hasn't been able to make a great album. the lead-off track, Halfway Home, from the new TV on the radio record, Dear Science, the third album from this Brooklyn-based group, started out as sort of an art project in Brooklyn between a producer-slash-artist named David Sytek and a vocalist-slash-artist named Tunde Adabimpe. It 
grew from there into one of the most talked about bands in New York City. At, at the same time that the bands like The Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs were gobbling up a lot of national attention, TV on the radio was right on their tail, sort of making more independent-sounding records, uh, more art-rock-oriented records. They started out on an independent label. They had an EP out on Touch and Go Records, uh, one of the uh, the greatest independent labels in the world, and then later on signed a major label deal with Interscope. Their 2006 Interscope debut, Return to Cookie Mountain, was one of the best albums of that year. In fact, it made number one on my year-end list. Now they're back with a follow-up to that record. It's called Dear Science. Before we review it, let's hear a track from it. It's called Shout Me Out from TV on the Radio on Sound Opinions. Distant figure in a photograph Another eye Shout me out from the third album by TV on the radio, Dear Science. Greg, I had problems with parts of uh, Cookie Mountain, the last TV on the radio album, uh, which you loved, which every rock critic in the world seemed to love. Now, don't get me wrong. Wolf Like Me, that uh, track in the middle of the album, absolutely killer. I didn't think anything else on the disc lived up to it. I'm sort of feeling uh, similar to parts of this disc. Halfway Home, (laughs) the track we bumped in with, man, absolutely killer. When TV on the radio slows down and gives us the balladry, heavy on the David Bowie, I'm a little more skeptical. That having been said, Dear Science, I think, is a stronger album than the last one. I think it's closer to being more successful. These guys set their horizons so wide. I mean, you know, there's jazz, and there's hip-hop, and there's rock, and there's experimental music, and there's African sounds. And sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they don't. I saw a British critic who was saying this will go down in history as the perfect soundtrack to the disorienting times of the Bush years. I did an interview with Tunde the other day, and he was saying, oh, my God, I hope people don't think of Bush every time they hear us. But <laughs> I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, we decided – we were all visual artists. We decided after 9-11 – 
that it kind of made more sense to make music. It's the only way we could make sense out of the world. If that's the case, the world is a confusing place right now. TV on the radio is sometimes a confusing band. When they get it right, which is about half of this album, they're amazing. So I got to go with a burn it. Well, I think one of the appeals of Return to Cooking Mountain was that it was, in fact, a soundtrack for a very dark period in this country's history, a claustrophobic, dense, very dark-sounding record. Uh, one of the appeals to it, and perhaps one of the reasons that uh, it did create some division among people who heard it, thinking, like, why is this so great? Because it's depressing me. At the same time, I think Dear Science comes back, and you can almost feel the clouds parting. There's a little bit more spaciousness in these arrangements. And there's also a sense of uh, weird optimism in the lyrics. There's a lot of talk in here about even though there's all this ugliness in the world, there's still a reason to hope and to go on. And I think that sense of optimism pierced through in a lot of this music. It's, it has a little bit of a lighter, more agile feel than the previous record. So, yes, the tone is different. Some people may not like it. They may have loved that sort of heavier feel that Cookie Mountain had. Well, and there's still a lot of darkness on this record. There's darkness. Don't get me wrong. But there's a little bit more of a funk feel. I think one of the distinguishing characteristics of this band is the vocal interplay between Tunde Arabimpe and Kip Malone, the guitarist in the band. I, I don't think any band quite sounds like they do. Certainly no rock band has their sense of harmony vocals that go back to African singing doo-wop vocals from the 50s. I mean, they're, they're bringing in those kind of references as well as the, the Bowie Berlin period influences that you cited earlier, Jim. It's a different record, but I love it. And I think the, the melodies are even stronger and more pronounced than they were before because they have allowed them to breathe a little bit more. And I, and I love that aspect of this record. So I'm going to give it a buy it on the Sound Opinions rating scale. Ah, we're split. It's a uh, buy it record for you, a burn it record for me, TV on the radio. T.I., we were both burn it, although America seems to disagree. It's the number one record in the country with 568,000 copies sold. Oasis, though, we're on the same page. Trash it. What do we have next week, Greg? Jim, we've got a slice of exotica here. We've got a world music band in the studio, Calexico. Indie rock band with myriad world influences in their music. We have some thank yous to say. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, a man, people speculate, who was the subject for Sax's book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Ben calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. I want to thank you, Greg, for using your Desert Island jukebox pick to highlight Earl Palmer. Oh, the fat top cats, now dung redone. I hate it for the gym to the sock hard ball. The dogs really jumping, the cats are going wild. The music really see my deed, the crazy style I'm ready. Of course, he's not a big enough name to have gotten a big obituary in a daily paper. And it was really sad to hear that he's passed, but thanks again for mentioning him.
to rock and roll. Hi, my name is Jake Armstrong. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I was so excited to turn on the uh, radio and have you guys talking about the psychedelic soul era. You guys are going through my favorite genre, which I've been in love with since I turned about 13. And I didn't hear you guys talk about them, and maybe I just missed it. But Charles Wright is amazing. Charles Wright and the Watson 103rd Street Rhythm Band has enjoyed a resurgence and certainly popularity being a pretty heavily sampled band. But a couple of their albums, Express Yourself in the Jungle Babe, are some of the finer examples of Los Angeles psychedelic soul. And uh, it was definitely worth it. And listen, thanks a lot, guys. It's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing. It's what you're doing when you're doing what you look like you're doing. Express yourself. Yeah, my name is Joe Hunter. I was listening to you guys, and uh, a lot of people say, well, that's, that's, not, that's not black music. You know, like, uh, it's music, period, in the story. And uh, all, the, all this type of music originated from rock and roll, which originated from blues and honky-tonk type music. So I'm trying to figure out what are they talking about. Anyway, keep on rocking. Some bottom so that the dancers just won't hide. Hi, this is Miles Hayes calling from Chicago, Illinois. Just uh, listened to the uh, Psychedelia Funk show, and I just wanted to say how unbelievable it was. Um, I'm a jazz singer here in Chicago. My wife is a blues singer, and I think the crazy grandkid is funk, and um, definitely one of my rec- recreational genres. I just thought you guys think it would be funny that um, every year our family and friends celebrate the funk. My brother Hogan went to UW-Madison and he started a holiday called the Funky New Year. And it's when the date matches the month. So they had a party every New Year's party every uh, month in Madison. They played all Funkadelic, Parliament, Fly, all the guys you mentioned. And uh, we've it's 10 years later. He started in 98, and we started it up again, and we celebrate the funk every summer in July. And um, just wanted to say that the show, I'm definitely sending it to my brother, and uh, thanks a lot for uh, an exploration and uh, psychedelia. Take care. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.